pastor and author Craig Groeschel said, your life is too valuable, your calling too great, and your God too awesome to waste your life on what doesn't matter. Last week we talked about God's calling on your life and how his call is the same for every follower of Christ to go and make disciples. Of course, how that calling is accomplished in your life, however, is unique to you because God has given each one of us a unique combination of gifts and talents in order to fulfill that calling. So uh, he didn't just create you. He also created a plan for you, a plan that requires you to use those gifts and talents in order to do what he created and called you to do. That is plan A for your life. Just for the record, there is no plan B. God's gifts and calling is his only plan for your life. By the way, uh, it's a lifetime offer. It doesn't expire until you do. Which means as long as you're still here, so is your calling and the gifts that you need to carry out that calling. Because there's no plan B. God doesn't change his mind, even though we do. He doesn't take back his plan for your life just because you've decided not to follow it. Which means your life and God's plan for it are inseparably bound together. His plan for your life is as much a part of who you are as your fingerprints, your family history, and your DNA. There's no separating you from God's plan for your life. You may choose not to follow it, but that doesn't make his plan for your life any less a part of who you are. Because unlike us, God doesn't change. What he intended for your life from before you were born is what he intends for your life every day since you were born. And it doesn't change because God doesn't change. Your calling and the gifts he's given you to carry out that calling are with you for your entire stay on this earth. In fact, the only person who can keep you from fulfilling that plan for your life, that's yeah, you. No one else can keep you from it. And listen, God won't. Because God doesn't change. The prophet Balaam said, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot revoke it. Numbers 23, 19 and 20. The apostle Paul said the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Romans eleven twenty nine, 29, and of course, those were statements made directly to the nation of Israel. But listen, they apply to you and me today, not because of our nature, but because of God's nature, because God doesn't change. Through Malachi, he said, I, the Lord, do not change, Malachi 3, 6, which means he doesn't give gifts and issue callings in people's lives and then take them back. No, once God gives it, it's there for good, which means whatever gifts God deposits in your life and whatever calling he issues in your life, it's there for good. He doesn't take it back. And so for those who think they've missed their calling in life, that isn't actually the problem. The problem is you don't believe it's still there available to you. Because of the choices you made, maybe in the life you've lived. I hear it all the time, some version of it. Well, Pastor, but you don't understand. You don't know what I've done. 
You don't know the life I've lived. You don't understand the mistakes I've made. You don't know how bad I've messed up. You don't know how far from God I've wandered. I'm telling you, I've missed it. Do you think your sin changes the nature of God? No. Your sin has no bearing on who God is. God is immutable, which means he's unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Listen, your sin is never going to change that. The length of time that you've avoided answering that calling in your life doesn't change the nature of God. Your rejection of that calling in your life all these years doesn't change the nature of God. Nothing you ever do in your life will ever change the fact that God has given you gifts and issued a calling in your life that is irrevocable. It never goes away. It never expires. He never takes it back, which means as long as you're breathing, there's still time for you to answer that call. There's still time to say yes to his calling on your life. And then, of course, you have to do something about it. Right? Because saying yes to God's calling on your life is great. But that's also the easy part. The hard part is doing something about it. The, the hard part is walking out that calling in your life every day after you say yes, as we're going to see in our story today as we continue to work our way through 1 Samuel and what really could be a part two to last week's sermon where, again, we talked about the fact that God's calling on each of our lives is the same calling. It's to go and make disciples. That's your one job when it comes to answering this call on your life. But today we're going to take that a step further. We're going we're to dig in a bit deeper when it comes to actually carrying out that calling because how you go about answering the call is different for every one of us. And it always brings with it, and most of you know this already, it always brings with it deep challenges that will test your resolve to keep going, as we're going to see today. Because the journey that Jesus wants to lead you on, it isn't going to look like anyone else's journey. The way he wants you to answer his call in your life is unique to you, which means it's going to lead you to people and places and circumstances where you'll have no choice but to trust him to see you through it, because it's not going to happen for you the way it happens for anyone else. Okay, listen, sometimes the only preparation there is for following Jesus is trust. And so as we pick the story back up where we left it last time, uh, let's pay attention as we go to the fact that David's gifts and calling, listen, in, in spite of immense hardship and gut-wrenching rejection and debilitating weakness and, and uh, abject failure, Right Through all of that, God's gifting and calling on David's life never changes because God never changes in David's life. And he doesn't change in your life either. 1 Samuel 23, we'll begin with the first five verses. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, 
And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. So with Saul and his army completely preoccupied with finding and killing David, the Philistines are now free to selectively attack Israelite cities unabated. And that's exactly what they do throughout this story today. They march into Keilah here, a walled city in Judah. It's about three miles south of the cave of Adullam, one of David's hideouts, you'll remember from last week, which was in the Shephala region of Judah, which was known uh, as an agriculturally rich, productive area. And it was early summer at this point, which was harvest time for barley and wheat. And so the Philistines drive their herds of cattle into the outskirts of the city where the threshing floors were, and they begin raiding the threshing floors, which is where the seeds or kernels of harvested grain was separated from the rest of the stock. So they're stealing all of the Israelites' food for themselves and for their livestock. And so the people of Keilah run to David, knowing he's close by. And of course, given uh, his resume when it comes to killing Philistines, David seems like the best option for help as far as the locals are concerned. And as far as God was concerned, David was gifted and called to be king. So he expected David to act like the king he was called to be, to defend the people of Israel, even though he could barely defend himself from Saul. And so the people run to David in a panic and ask him to come and help. And notice, uh, David doesn't rush right into battle. He stops to pray to find out what God wants him to do. Because remember, from the last chapter, David has these 400 men with him. 400 ragged men with thin resumes and bad credit reports and even worse attitudes which shows up immediately after David tells them what they're about to do, which we'll see in a minute. And so David prays and asks God if he should go. And God says, go attack the Philistines and save Keilah. So David tells these men what they're about to do, to which they reply, behold, David, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? That's another way of saying, hey, Dave, come here. Are you crazy? We have enough trouble with Saul trying to kill us. Now you want to pick a fight with the Philistines too. And it gives David pause. Because what they're saying actually makes a lot of sense. So David goes back to God in prayer. Just to make sure that he and God are on the same page. And the text doesn't tell us what David said to God the second time. But I imagine it was something along the lines of, Hey there God. So just to be clear, one of the most powerful men on earth with one of the most powerful militaries on earth has made it his number one priority in life to hunt me down and kill me. And you want me to take my 400 unwilling, untrained, unequipped, and unhappy men and go and save the people of Keilah from the Philistines. You're kidding, right? Well, you see, God doesn't change. So his plan for David's life didn't change just because David was going through something really hard in his life. Even something life-threatening. Still makes you wonder why. Why in, the, why in the world would God tell David to go and save Keilah instead of telling Saul to do it? Well, it's because that was a part of God's calling on David's life, not Saul's. Which means no matter how hard life was for David at the moment, he still had to do what God called him to do, because whether we want to hear it or not, listen, the truth is 
Hardship doesn't cancel your calling. Hardship doesn't cancel your calling. Just because you're going through something hard doesn't mean you get a pass to stop doing what God has gifted and called you to do. David was gifted and called to lead and guide and protect the people of Israel. And that's exactly what God expected him to do, regardless of the fact that at the same time, Saul is trying to find him and kill him. Okay, the fact is, if you don't serve God when everything in your life is in turmoil, then you won't serve God when everything in your life is good. You won't, because it is through the battles in your life that God equips you for the calling on your life. Hardship doesn't cancel your calling. It actually equips you for it. When David walked into Keilah, listen, he had 400 inexperienced, under-equipped, barely-fed, untested men. When he walked out of Keilah, he had 600 experienced fighters, well-supplied with herds of Philistine cattle and the finest military weapons and equipment available at the time. Why? Because of the battle. Because David was willing to answer the call of God on his life, even in the face of immense hardship. They were able to plunder the Philistines and take their cattle and take their weapons and take their equipment and take away a tremendous amount of confidence for the next battle because now they're experienced fighters. By the way, their fighting force grew by 200 men, as we'll see, probably from Keilah, men who decided to follow after David after seeing what he did in the battle against the Philistines. So listen, sure, there are times in life where God prepares you for what's ahead before you get there, but I can tell you from these stories in the Bible and from my own life, sometimes when you're following Jesus, the only preparation available to you for what's ahead is trust. It's trusting in God to provide what you need when you need it, which often comes in the midst of the battle, not before. So you have to trust him enough to go where he calls you to go and to do what he calls you to do. Even, listen, even when you're facing the greatest challenges of your life. It's not as if God says, hey, I can see you're going through a hard time right now. So why don't you take a break from doing what I've called you to do until your circumstances improve. That's not how it works. In fact, it's just the opposite. When life gets harder, God says, get after your calling even harder. Do what I created and called you to do now more than ever. Because listen, through hardship, God not only equips you for your calling, but it's also through hardship that he confirms your calling. Okay? Hardship doesn't cancel your calling. It confirms it. Think about it. Because of the battle, David not only had all the provisions he needed to continue carrying out the calling in his life from here, but his army grew by 50%. 200 additional men affirmed David's calling as king by choosing to follow him, and he reestablished himself as a capable military leader and defender of Israel since being banished by Saul. Why? It's all because of the battle that he wasn't prepared to fight. Hardship doesn't cancel your calling. It confirms it. So look, no matter what uh, battles you're facing in your life right now, no matter how hard it may be at times, listen, the life that God created and called you to live is irrevocable, which means there's no trouble in this world that can keep you from your calling. 
Only you can do that. C.S. Lewis once said, hardship often prepares an ordinary person for an extraordinary destiny. Let's keep reading. Verses 6 through 14. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. So he's not, he's not coming just for David. He's going to come kill them all. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition, and David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. So Saul gets word that David and his men are in Keilah, and so he calls up an enormous army to besiege the city. So, so just to be clear... Saul won't go to Keilah to save his own people because of the Philistines, but he'll go to Keilah to kill his own people because of David. And of course, that kind of military movement doesn't go undetected for long. And so David hears about the massive conscription of soldiers amassing at Keilah uh, because of Keilah against him. And therefore, he calls for the priest and the ephod. Uh, the ephod was a garment that the priest would wear, and attached to the ephod was a breastplate that contained the Urim and Thummim. We talked about this a few weeks ago, probably a, a few months back now, which uh, these were stones or tokens that the priest would cast like dice to help them determine the best course of action when big decisions had to be made. And they were used to great effect throughout Israel's history to determine the will of God. And yet all you could really count on the Urim and Thummim for were basically yes or no answers, which is why David's prayers are all framed as yes or no questions. So David asks two questions. Is Saul going to come after me here? And will the people of Keilah give me and my men up to Saul? And through the Urim and Thummim, David has his answers. Yes, on both accounts. You want to talk about a punch in the gut. David just risked his own life and the life of his men by going into battle with a largely unequipped, inexperienced army who were scared out of their minds to confront the Philistines. But they did it anyway upon the pleading of the people of Keilah and the call of God to go. And having risked their own lives to save the city, the people are now planning to hand David and his men over to Saul when he shows up. It's hard to imagine the rejection that David must have felt in that moment as the Urim and Thummim confirmed his worst nightmare, that the very people he just risked everything for when they needed him the most would now turn on David when he needed them the most. And as we'll see in the next part of the story, it affected David deeply. In fact, it must have been tempting, and indeed it was to give up, we know from from the Psalms, to walk away, to say, you know what, I'm done. 
this isn't worth it. I've given everything for these people, and this is the thanks I get. But see, God was using this moment, this low point in David's life to teach him a lesson that he would benefit from the rest of his life. The fact that rejection doesn't cancel your calling. I said it just last week. Sometimes the people you serve won't like the way you serve them. Listen, that doesn't invalidate your calling. If anything, it confirms it. Right? Jesus was rejected for doing exactly what the Father called him to do. The apostles were rejected for doing exactly what Jesus called them to do. And throughout your life, there will be times when you are rejected for doing exactly what the Holy Spirit is calling you to do. It's a confirmation that you're doing exactly what you should be doing. So listen, don't, don't ever let people's opinions about your life override God's calling on your life. Because there will always be someone who doesn't approve of what you're doing when you're serving God. I can guarantee it. And yet, much of the church has become far more concerned with what the world thinks we should be doing rather than what God has called us to be doing. Why is that? Well, it's because we really want people to like us. So much so that sometimes we seek the approval of men more than we seek the approval of God. The truth is, in our society, self has become our God. And that prevailing attitude has infiltrated the church where pleasing people has often become more of a priority than, than glorifying God. And in the process, we make Christianity more about ourselves than about Jesus Christ. Just consider how many times you've heard Christians and Christian leaders talk about salvation in terms of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ to the exclusion of any talk about the church being an inseparable part of that same salvation. You understand, right? Uh, you weren't just saved into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You were also saved into the body of Christ, the church. Your salvation cannot be separated from the church. It cannot be because the moment you were saved, you became a member of his body, the church. And yet people constantly, I'm telling you, they constantly talk about loving Jesus and loathing the church. Well, I hate to break it to you, but you cannot have a high view of Christ and a low view of the church and call yourself a Christian. Because to be in Christ is by definition to be in the church. Yet we've become so obsessed with pleasing people that we've lost sight of pleasing God as faithful members of his body of the church because doing so means being rejected by the world. It does. But we want people to like us. So we use their approval as affirmation that we're doing God's work fulfilling his calling on our lives when the opposite is true. Jesus was very clear. He said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 15, 9, you see, rejection doesn't cancel your calling. Rejection confirms your calling because according to Jesus, rejection by this world is a part of your calling. 
So don't give up on your calling when people reject you for it. No, embrace it for what it is, because no matter how much people may ever reject you for serving God, listen, your calling is irrevocable, which means no amount of rejection can keep you from answering that call on your life. Only you can do that. Recording artist Lecrae once said, if you live for people's acceptance, you will die from their rejection. Let's keep reading. Verse 15 to the first half of verse 24. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear. For the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill of Hekelah, which is south of Jeshmon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire, to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there, for it is told me that he's very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he's in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. So uh, as David retreats further into the rugged, precipitous, and deserted hills southeast of Hebron, his own tribe, the Ziphites, go to Saul and offer to give David up, just like the people of Keilah. And of course, knowing the area better than anyone, David's position has never been weaker than it is now because the Ziphites know all of the hiding places in the area, including the exact hill where David and his men are now hiding, as we'll see. And so David's best friend, the king's son, Jonathan, comes out to meet David and, and strengthened his hand in God. Why did God strengthen David through Jonathan? Because David was weak. Things have gone from bad to worse. After the people of Keilah reject him, his own tribe goes to Saul and sells him out. And make no mistake about it, David is wrecked. He is distraught, which is why Jonathan says to him, do not fear, because David was afraid. In fact, this incident happens to be when David wrote Psalm 54, which we know from its heading, a mascal of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? And in that psalm, David cries out to God, Oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. Oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen up against me. This is his own tribe. Ruthless men seek my life. See, David's position has never been more compromised than it is now, and he knows it. So God sends Jonathan to strengthen David when David is at his weakest. What is so powerful about this encounter is the certainty that Jonathan expresses in God's plan for David's life coming to fruition, even though David's circumstances seem anything but certain. As Jonathan says, do not fear, David, for the, the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. 
That is an incredible thing to say to someone who is now not only being hunted by the king and his army, but now all the people in the towns and villages around him, including his own tribe, are hunting him. The fact is, from the outside looking in, David's current position couldn't have appeared to be any weaker. But listen, weakness doesn't cancel your calling. If anything, it confirms it. Right, if there was ever a word to describe David's position, his army and their readiness for war at the Battle of Keilah, weakness would have been the word. Right, and yet that's exactly how God wanted them to approach the battle. Totally dependent on him. And now it appears to be even worse as the Israelites are all turning on David. And yet that's exactly where God wanted him to be. Because just as Jesus said to the Apostle Paul, my power is made perfect in what? Weakness. By the way, Paul's response reveals a profound understanding of the fact that embracing your own weaknesses is part and parcel with answering the call of God on your life. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses. Who says that? Who actually feels that way? I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Why would you say that, Paul? He says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, you understand you were never meant to rely on your strength to carry out God's calling. God's calling on your life requires God's strength in your life. You can't do it on your own. And yet in our, in our culture, of course, we take pride in doing things on our own, in our own strength, right? I wash the dishes. I want to look back at my wife like, you see what I just did there? We, we, we love it. We love taking credit. And it's one of the main reasons more Christians don't do more with their gifts and calling, because most of us have been taught our entire lives to rely on ourselves rather than depending on God or anyone else. You know why? Because then we can claim the credit. Then we can claim to be self-made men and women. Look what I did instead of look what God did. And listen, when you live that way, you're actually selling yourself short on what you could be accomplishing if you'd lean on his strength. Right? Paul didn't say, I can do all things. No. He said, I can do all things through him who what? Strengthens me. Philippians 4.13. Okay, it's when you embrace your own weakness, not your own strength, that God fills you with his strength. The prophet Isaiah said he gives power to who? To the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Isaiah 40.29. You see the... The hard truth of it is, if what you're accomplishing in your life right now can be achieved by your own strength, then it's not God's plan you're accomplishing. Because God's plan for your life could never be accomplished by your own strength alone. Listen, what God has planned for your life requires a total dependence on Him and on His strength. And it, it, without it, it's not happening. It's as simple as that which is exactly what David had to learn because God knew that David would never make it through all that was ahead of him 
without the power of God at work in him. So he sent David into the battle in a position of weakness so that he would have to rely on God's strength. Listen, you and I really need to learn this as well. If we're going to make the most of God's irrevocable gifts and calling in our lives, we need to learn that relying on his strength means embracing your own weaknesses. Because your weakness doesn't cancel your calling. It confirms it. Author Max Lucado wrote, I simply think God is greater than our weakness. In fact, I think it is our weakness that reveals how great God is. Let's finish the story for today from the second half of verse 24 to the end of the chapter. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon, and Saul and his men went to seek him, and David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard uh, that he pursued, when Saul heard that he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul, and Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. A messenger came to Saul and said, Hurry, come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. So the Ziphites sell David out as promised, and Saul closes in. And as David and his men retreat from the eastern slope of the mountain toward the Dead Sea, Saul divides his force into two flanks and sends them around the mountain to the north and to the south to encircle David. And since the land of the east was open country, Saul would easily capture David. Okay? This was it. And everyone knew it. This was it. This was the moment Saul had been longing for, waiting for. David has run out of real estate. The gig is up. Saul has him dead to rights. Fact is, David's escape plan has failed. And there's about to be a reckoning. Yet even in his own failure, we know from Psalm 54 that even in that moment, David trusted in God to overcome David's own failures. He says, I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good, for he has delivered me from every trouble. And my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Psalm 54, 6 and 7, just a reminder, God. <laughs> sure enough, David's trust in God has not been misplaced, for at the 11th hour, God superintends a raid on the Israelites by the Philistines because, again, they know that Saul is preoccupied with hunting down David, and so reluctantly, Saul must temporarily abandon his personal vendetta when he's so close. But he's got to abandon it for the sake of national security. And once again, David is not only saved, but he's strengthened as they make their way into the strongholds of Engedi, an oasis on the western shore of the Dead Sea due east of Ziph. Not because David has done everything right. By the way, far from it, as we saw in the last chapter, because of David's failure in dealing righteously with the priest at Nob, the entire village, all the priests and their families were killed by Saul. And now because of David's failed escape plan, he and his men are nearly captured. But look, 
in spite of David's failures, God continues to move David forward in his plan for David's life because failure doesn't cancel your calling. If anything, it confirms it. Because when you continue to answer the call of God in your life, even through personal failures, guess who gets the credit? God does. Right? David couldn't claim any credit for escaping from Saul. Not one bit. Saul had him dead to rights right where he wanted him. David's plan failed. But David wasn't living out his plan. He was living out God's plan. And so even in his own failure, God delivers David and gets all the glory, which is how it's supposed to be. So look, I, I hope you're listening because some of you need to hear this. You can fail a thousand times. In fact, you can fail God a thousand times and still pursue the gifts and calling in your life. You know why? Because in the midst of all of your own failures, God never fails. And his gifts and calling in your life are irrevocable even in failure. In fact, you know what? One of the greatest enemies of your calling is personal success. It's true. One of the greatest enemies of your calling is personal success because the more we succeed on our own, on our strength, on our merit, on our steam, the more we succeed on our own, the more we tend to take the credit and the lower we set the bar because with more personal success comes more fear of failure. It's a cycle that we walk out in our lives. When the truth is, personal failure just gives God more room to work in our lives. So look, your ability to pursue God's gift and calling in your life, that's dependent upon God being successful, not you. In fact, even through the worst failures of your life, there is nothing or no one in this world who can stop you from pursuing God's calling on your life. Only you can do that by giving up. Author Francis Chan said, our greatest fear should not be a failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. Okay, look. God's gifts and calling that he assigned uniquely to you before he knit you together in your mother's womb. Those gifts and that calling, that is plan A for your life. There is no plan B. It's a lifetime offer, which means it doesn't expire until you do. Because unlike us, God doesn't change. What he intended for your life from before you were born is what he intends for your life every day since you've been born. It never goes away. It never expires. He doesn't take it back, which means as long as you're breathing, there's still time for you to answer that call. There is still time for you to say yes to his calling on your life today. So don't allow hardship or rejection, or weakness, or even failure to keep you from your calling. Because listen, the truth is, all of that is there 
to confirm your calling, the irrevocable calling on your life to be the man or woman he created you to be. Let's pray.